Welcome to the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. This podcast will be a sharing of part of my morning routine as I prepare for the day with the Word of God. We will be partaking of Puritan prayers from the Valley of Vision, each day's morning devotional from Charles Haddon Spurgeon's Morning and Evening, and we'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, which is the newest and, I believe, the most accurate translation of the Word of God. We will be following a Bible reading calendar that provides for reading the whole Bible in a year that was created by Minister Robert Murray McShane for his congregation back in 1842, and that has been a part of my daily reading for over six years now. Good morning and welcome to the morning segment of the Thursday, August 17th episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I'm Wayne Floyd, your host. Faith Comes From Hearing podcast is a member of the Christian Podcast Community. You can find us over at christianpodcastcommunity.org. There's a lot of great listening over there, over 60 well-curated podcasts, wide, wide variety of topics. So I can guarantee you'll find something over there you want to listen to. I want to continue to point you at the final link in our show notes. It is for the Vail Valley Baptist Church Gives Sin Go campaign. We are striving to rapidly pay off our mortgage to convince establishment of a Christian classic education-based school to provide a trustworthy alternative for our community. Go ahead and click on the link. Pastor Jay's provided a very thorough description, much more thorough than I just gave you. Um, and then we would ask you to do three things for us. We'd ask you to pray for us. We'd ask you to prayerfully consider giving to us. And we'd ask you to pass the link along. Excuse me. So that others can do the same. All right. Well, let's get into it. We're going to be doing continuing on in our reading in Nehemiah, as well as 1 Corinthians, Psalms, and Proverbs today in our reading. And then we'll be continuing on in our study of John chapter 11. We're in that last section there. It's the, the reactions uh, to the resurrection of Lazarus. So we'll be working through then. We're almost done with it. God willing, tomorrow evening, we will wrap that up and we'll be moving into John chapter 12 next week. Again, God willing. So let's go ahead and open up in prayer. We're going to open up with um, the fifth day morning prayer from Valley of Vision. It's called the giver. Let's pray. Creator, upholder, and proprietor of all things, we cannot escape from thy presence and control, nor do we desire to do so. Our privilege is to be under the agency of thy omnipotence, righteousness, wisdom, patience, mercy, and grace. For thou art love with more than parental affection. We admire thy goodness, stand in awe of thy power, abase ourselves before thy purity. It is the discovery of thy goodness alone that can banish our fear. Allure us into thy presence, help us to bewail and confess our sins. We review our past guilt and are conscious of present unworthiness. We bless thee that thy steadfast love and attributes are essential to our happiness and hope. Thou hast witnessed to us thy grace and mercy in the bounties of nature, in the fullness of thy providence, in the revelations of scripture, in the gift of thy Son, in the proclamation of the gospel. Make us willing to be saved in thy own way perceiving nothing in ourselves but all in Jesus. Help us not only to receive him, but to walk in him, depend upon him, commune with him, follow him as dear children, imperfect but still pressing forward, not complaining of labor, but valuing rest, not murmuring under trials, but thankful for our state, and by so doing let us silence the ignorance of foolish men. Amen. All right, our morning devotion, the text for it, from Psalm 52, 8, the mercy of God. Meditate a little on this mercy of the Lord. 
It is tender mercy. With gentle, sorry, with gentle loving touch, he healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. He is as gracious in the manner of his mercy as in the matter of it. It is great mercy. There is nothing little in God. His mercy is like himself. It is infinite. You cannot measure it. His mercy is so great that it forgives great sins to great sinners. After great lengths of time and then gives great favors and great privileges and raises us up to great enjoyments in the great heaven of the great God. It is undeserved. It is undeserved mercy as indeed all true mercy must be for deserved mercy is only a misnomer for justice. There was no right on the sinner's part to the kind consideration of the Most High. Had the rebel been doomed at once to eternal fire, he would have richly merited the doom, and if delivered from wrath, sovereign love alone has found a cause, for there was none in the sinner himself. It is rich mercy. Some things are great, but have little efficacy in them. But this mercy is a cordial to your drooping, to your drooping spirits, a golden ointment to your bleeding wounds a heavenly bandage to your broken bones, a royal chariot chariot, sorry, for your weary feet, a bosom of love for your trembling heart. It is manifold mercy. As Bunyan says, all the flowers in God's garden are double. There is no single mercy. You may think you have but one mercy, but you shall find it is it to be a whole cluster of mercies. It is a bounding mercy. Millions have received it, yet far from it being exhausted, it is as fresh, as full, and as free as ever. It is unfailing mercy. It will never leave thee. If mercy be thy friend, mercy will be with thee in temptation to keep thee from yielding, with thee in trouble to prevent thee from sinking, with thee living to be the light and life of thy countenance, and with thee dying to be the joy of thy soul when earthly comfort is heavy. Is ebbing fast. All right. So we're going to be reading uh, Nehemiah 12, verse 27, through all of Nehemiah 13. We'll be reading the first 16 verses of 1 Corinthians 11. We'll be reading the first 16 verses of Psalm 35. And we'll be reading Proverbs 21, verse 17 and 18. So Nehemiah 12, starting in verse 27. Now at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from all their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. So the sons of the singers were gathered from the district around Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, from Beth Gilgal and from their fields in Jeba, Jeba and Asmaveth, for the singers for the singers had built themselves villages around Jerusalem. The priests and the Levites cleansed themselves. They also cleansed the people, the gates, and the wall. Then I had the leaders of Judah come up on top of the wall, and I had two great choirs of thanksgiving stand, the first proceeding to the right on top of the wall toward the dung gate. Hoshea and half of the leaders of Judah followed them, with Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, and some of the sons of the priests with trumpets, and Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Madaniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zechur, the son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, um, Milalai, Gilalai, Maai, Nethanel, Judah, and Hanani with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. 
At the spring gate they went directly up the steps of the city of David by the stairway of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The second choir proceeded to the left while I followed them, with half of the people on the wall above the tower of furnaces to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, by the old gate, by the fish gate, the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, as far as the sheep gate, and they stood at the gate of the guard. Then the two... Mm. Then the two choirs took their stand in the house of God. So did I and half of the officials with me, and the priest, Eliakim, Messiah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Elioni, Zechariah, and Hananiah with the trumpets, and Messiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehohanan, Malkijah, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers made their voices heard with Jezrahiah their overseer. And on that day... They offered great sacrifices and were glad because God had given them great gladness. Even the women and children were glad, so that the gladness of Jerusalem was heard from afar. On that day men were also appointed over the chambers for the stores, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather into them from the fields of the cities, the portions required by the law for the priests and Levites, for Judah was glad over the priests and Levites who stood to minister. And they kept their responsibility given by their God, and the responsibility of cleansing together with the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the commandment of David and his son Solomon. For in the days of David and Asaph in ancient times, there were chiefs of the singers, songs of praise, and hymns of thanksgiving to God. So all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah were giving the portions due the singers and the gatekeepers as each day required, and set apart the holy portion for the Levites, and the Levites set apart the holy portion for the sons of Aaron. Nehemiah 13 On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into blessing. So when they heard the law, they separated all foreigners from Israel. Now prior to this, Eliashib the priest, who put in who was put in charge over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him, where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, also new wine and oil commanded for the, for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But during all this time I was not in Jerusalem, for in the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and discerned the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a chamber for him in the courts of the house of God. It was very evil to me, so I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the chamber. Then I said the word, and they cleansed the chambers, and I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. I also came to know that the portions of the Levites had not been given them, given them, so the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his own field. So I contended against the officials, and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together, and had them stand in their posts. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, new wine, and oil into the storehouses. In charge of the storehouses I appointed Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pedaiah of the Levites, and in addition to them was Hanan the son of Zechur, the son of Madaniah, for they were counted as faithful, and it was their task to apportion everything to their relatives. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loving kindness, which I have shown for the house of my God and its responsibilities. 
In those days I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in sacks of grain, and loading them on donkeys, as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, and they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I testified against them on the day they sold food. Also men of Tyre were living there who brought in fish and all kinds of merchandise, and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you are doing, even profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same, so our God brought on us and on this city all this calamity? Yet you are adding to his anger on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Now it happened that just as it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I said the word and the doors were shut. Then I said that they should not open them until after the Sabbath. Then I had some of my young men stand at the gate so that no load would enter on the Sabbath day. Once or twice the traders and merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will send forth my hand against you. From, the to- from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And I said to the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and come as gatekeepers to keep the Sabbath day holy. For this also remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your king of your loving kindness. Excuse me. And those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them were able to speak the language of Judah, but only the tongue of his own people. And so I contended with them, and cursed them, and struck some of them, and pulled out their hair, and made them swear by God, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take up their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God gave him to be king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Do we then hear about you that you have done all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God, by marrying foreign women? And even one of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite, so I made him flee away from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign and ensured that the responsibility stood for the priests and the Levites, each in his work. And I arranged for the supply of wood at fixed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. All right, 1 Corinthians 11, and hang on, I need a drink here. Oh, much better. I need a little bit of water there. All right, like I said, 1 Corinthians 11, we're reading the first 16 verses. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you before you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the... I'm sorry, I, now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and man and the man is the head of a woman and god is the head of christ every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying shames his head but every woman who has who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying shames her head for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved for if a woman does not cover her head let her also have her hair cut short but if it is a 
but if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut short or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, excuse me, but woman from man. For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord neither is a woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman. But all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. All right. Psalm 35, verse 16 verses. Of David. Contend, O Yahweh, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and large shield, and rise up for my help. Draw also the spear and the battle axe to meet those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let those be ashamed and dishonored who seek my life. Let those who devise evil against me be turned back and humiliated. Let them be like chaff before the wind, with the angel of Yahweh driving them on. Let their way be dark and slippery, with the angel of Yahweh pursuing them. For without cause they hid their net for me, without cause they dug a pit for my soul. Let destruction which he does not know come upon him, and let the net which he hid catch him. Let him fall into it in destruction. For my soul shall rejoice in Yahweh, it shall be joyful in his salvation. All my bones will say, Yahweh, who is like you, who delivers the afflicted from him who is too strong for him, and the afflicted and the needy from him who robs him. Malicious witnesses rise up, who ask me for ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. It is bereavement to my soul. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer kept turn, returning to my bosom. I walked about as though it were my friend or brother. I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. But at my stumbling they were glad and gathered themselves together. The smiters whom I did not know gathered together against me. They tore at me and never were silent. Amongst the godless jester, jesters at a feast, they gnashed at me with their feet, or with their teeth. Excuse me. All right. And finally, Proverbs 21, verses 17 and 18. He who loves pleasure will become a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not become rich. The wicked is a ransom for the righteous, and the treacherous is in the place of the upright. All right, well, that is our reading for the day. I hope you have yourself a wonderful day. I would continue to implore you to do all that you do for the glory of God. And I hope to see you for the evening segment. Let's go ahead and close out with prayer. The prayer we're going to close out with is called Cal Cal Calvary's Anthem. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thou hast led me singing to the cross, where I fling down all my burdens and see them vanish, where my mountains of guilt are leveled to a plain, where my sins disappear, though they are the greatest that exist, and are more in number than the grains of fine sand. For there is power in the blood of Calvary, to destroy sins more than can be counted, even by one from the choir of heaven. Thou hast given me a hillside spring, that washes clear and white, and I go as a sinner to its waters, bathing without hindrance in its crystal streams. At the cross there is free forgiveness for poor and meek ones, and ample blessings that last forever. 
the blood of the Lamb is like a great river of infinite grace, with never any diminishing of its fullness, as thirsty ones without number drink of it. O Lord, forever will thy free forgiveness live, that was gained on the Mount of Blood, in the midst of a world of pain. It is a subject for praise in every place, a song on earth, an anthem in heaven, its love and virtue knowing no end. I have a longing for the world above, where multitudes sing the great song, for my soul was never created to love the dust of earth. Though here my spiritual state is frail and poor, I shall go on singing Calvary's anthem. May I always know that a clean heart full of goodness is more beautiful than the lily, that only a clean heart can sing by night and by day, that such a heart is mine when I abide at Calvary. Amen. All right, again, I hope you have yourself a wonderful day, and I hope to see you this evening. Have a good one. God bless. Welcome to the evening segment of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. Good evening and welcome to the evening segment of the Thursday August 17th episode of the Faith Comes From Hearing podcast. I continue to be Wayne Floyd, your host. We're going to be continuing on our study of John chapter 11 this evening, so let's go ahead and jump right in. Uh, We're going to go ahead and open up, uh, as we usually do, with the prayer from Valley Vision. This one is called Happiness. Let's pray. O Lord, help me never to expect any happiness from the world, but only in Thee. Let me not think that I shall be more happy by living to myself, for I can only be happy if employed for Thee and if I desire to live in this world only to do and suffer what thou dost allot me. Teach me that if I do not live a life that satisfies thee, I shall not live a life that will satisfy myself. Help me to desire the spirit and temper of angels, who willingly come down to this lower world to perform thy will, though their desires are heavenly, and not set in the least upon earthly things. Then I shall be of that temper I ought to have. Help me not to think of living to thee, and my own strength, but always to look to and rely on thee for assistance. Teach me that there is no greater truth than this, that I can do nothing of myself. Lord, this is the life that no unconverted man can live, yet it is an end that every godly soul presses after. Let it be, then, my concern to devote myself at all and all to thee. Make me more fruitful and more spiritual, for, barren, for barrenness is my daily affliction and load. How precious is time, and how painful to see it fly, with little done to good purpose. I need thy help. O may my soul sensibly depend upon thee for all sanctification, and every accomplishment of thy purposes for me, for the world, and for thy kingdom. Amen. All right, the evening devotion from Spurgeon's Morning and Evening, the text for it is from John 11. What do you know? This sickness is not unto death. From our Lord's words, we learn that there is a limit to sickness. Here, here as is an unto within which its ultimate end is restrained and beyond which it cannot go. Lazarus might pass through death, but death was not to be the ultimatum of, this, of his sickness. In all sickness the Lord saith to the waves of pain, Hitherto shall ye go, but no further. His fixed purpose is not the destruction, but the instruction of his people. Wisdom hangs up the thermometer at the furnace mouth and regulates the heat. The limit is encouragingly comprehensive. The God of providence has limited the time, manner, intensity, repetition, and effects of all our sicknesses. 
Each throb is decreed, each sleepless hour predestined, each relapse ordained, each depression of spirit foreknown, and each sanctifying result eternally purposed. Nothing great or small escapes the ordaining hand of him who numbers the hairs of our head. This limit is wisely adjusted to our strength, to the end designed, and to the grace apportioned. Affliction comes not at haphazard, the weight of every stroke of the rod is accurately measured. He who made no mistakes in balancing the clouds and meeting out the heavens commits no error in measuring out the ingredients which composes the medicine of souls. We cannot suffer too much nor be relieved too late. Number three, the limit is tenderly appointed. The knife of the heavenly surgeon never cuts deeper than is absolutely necessary. He doth not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. A mother's heart cries, Spare my child, but no mother is more compassionate than our gracious God. When we consider how hard-mouthed we are, it is a wonder that we are not driven with a sharper bit. The thought is full of consolation, that he who has, who has fixed the bounds of our habitation has also fixed the bounds of our tribulation. All right, well, like I said, we're continuing on our, in our, continuing on, wow, sorry, lips are not working today. We are continuing on in our study of the Gospel of John, um, John chapter 11, uh, which is the death and resurrection of Lazarus. Um, it is the, like we've talked about, it is the last great miracle that John the Apostle records here um, in Jesus's public ministry, okay? Um, his public ministry really ends in chapter 10, but we have this last thing that happens and does happen in public. And, you know, he talks about it. We've seen that in through, as we've come through chapter 11, that, that a big part of it, and he states it himself early in chapter 11 to the, to the 12, that this is happening this way, that, 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 um, he's glad that this has happened this way. Not that he's glad that, um, because at that point he's told them Lazarus is dead, even though the sisters haven't told him that yet. He knows, um, and he tells them he's glad that it's happened, not that he's glad the sisters are going through this or that Lazarus has had to go through this or anything like that. It's not the sadistic gladness, but he's glad because it's meant to strengthen their faith, to strengthen the twelve's faith. And considering what's going to come up within the next few months, as we get into the last passion week and Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, and they're, they're going to have to be the start of the, of the church, the start of this new, what, what they're calling a new sect. Okay. Of the way. That was another way they named it. Um, they didn't. I mean, the people around them named it. So they, they needed to be strengthened. So we've seen that. Um, and, and again, you know, this comes in the context, like I've told you before, from John 5 to John 10, we've seen the Jews. Remember, John the Apostle uses that term. And I know I keep saying it, but it's because I want you to remember it. When he typically says Jews, he's talking about the Jewish leadership, the Jewish leadership, that religious leadership which would entail the Sanhedrin. I mean, it may be others around, but it's also the Sanhedrin. Okay, that's who he's talking about here. And they have shown a hostile, murderous intent towards Jesus. Even though, truthfully, they they more than anybody else should know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. They should be identifying him like you and I can do when we take the Old Testament, we go through all the prophecies, and we can see very clearly that he meets all the prophecies on top of the, on, and on top of that, he does all these miracles that only somebody from God could do. Okay. And, and again, John nine, we saw he did that with the man born blind. Well, here he is now. And in the, in the, the verses we're dealing with here, this is the aftermath. This is the reactions to the resurrection 
of Lazarus. Okay, so he has resurrected him. And and like we talked about, he has involved the crowd in this. They open the tomb. Lazarus has come out and they have unwrapped him. Jesus has not had any direct contact here. He has involved them so that these people, and, and, and again, these Jews, these Jewish leadership, has come to mourn with Mary and Martha. They've come to mourn. As we've talked about, Mary and Martha and Lazarus obviously were from a well-to-do house. The Bethany there by Jerusalem is maybe two miles outside of Jerusalem. At 15 stadia, I think, was the term they used, which is a little less than two miles, like 1.7 miles or something like that. So they came to mourn. So they've seen this, and in this case, some of them are the ones who have opened the tomb, didn't smell the decayed smell, and then are now unwrapping Lazarus. They are direct witnesses, and they're direct witnesses with a bunch of other witnesses, so they can't lie about it, to the fact that this man was brought back to life. So they're the witnesses for this. And so we've been talking about what are the reactions. And, and I told you there were three groups of reactions. There's the many, which we see in verse 45. There's the murderers. I kept saying murderous, and I'm sorry. The murderers, which is verses 46 through 54, which we're really dealing with today. I know a lot of verses, but they come in groups. So we're going to deal with them in groups here um, as this exchange goes on. And then we're going to see the multitudes, which are the like the last three verses. I think it's verse 55 through 57. So we'll deal with that tomorrow evening, God willing. But so we saw the many. Verse 45, therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done, believed in him. And in this case, I think Jews, I think it does apply to the Jewish leadership, but I think it's also applying to the average people that were there as well around that saw it. But it was kind of everybody there. Many of them believed in him. And again, I made kind of clear to you because of the direct contrast we're seeing between that and verses 46 to 54, the murderers, and ver verses 55 to 57, the multitudes, the contrast there. These are people that are coming to a, tr full, a true faith in Jesus Christ. They are truly being saved. They are truly being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Okay, even though Jesus hasn't died and rose again, these are people that are coming to a true, true belief. This is not just a, hey, this is cool. This this is the next great, you know, um, um. I'm sorry, I was trying to think of a magician, <laughs> and I I don't really follow magicians. Um, but, you know, this is not the gr ne next great trickster. This is the Messiah. That That's what they're really, this is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man. This is our Savior. So, that's them. So, we're dealing with the murderers today. So, I'm going to go ahead and read to you. Uh, verses 46, so John 11, verses 46 through 54, and we will dive in. But some of them, so this is in contrast to the many, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the Sanhedrin together and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is doing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now he did not say this for himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. 
Therefore Jesus no longer continued to walk openly among the Jews, but went away from there to the region near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Okay, so let's back up. So I want to look at verse 46 first. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Now I already talked to you about this last evening. Um, these were not people just passing along information. People have, you know, people have talked about that in the commentaries and stuff. Somebody just going along, passing along information. But again, just like we talked about the contrast and as far as how it explains verse 45 and the true belief there, these people being in direct confrontation, these are people that are hostile to Jesus. They are running off to the Pharisees to tattle. They're running off to the Pharisees with ill intent. They're going off with ill intent. These are not just people passing along information, okay? Um, these are not just people who are relatively harmlessly gossiping. They're running off to the Pharisees to see what the, to, to tell the Pharisees to see what the Pharisees are going to do next. And the Pharisees, believe me, these people are very well aware that the, this Jewish leadership, which included the Pharisees, have been extremely hostile and extremely murderous. I mean, they've tried already a couple of times to try to gather him to kill him. I mean, and it was that clear that they were doing that. So verse 47 and 48, let me do this. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the Sanhedrin together and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is doing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Okay, let's talk about, we need to break down a few things. Um, and we've talked about this before, um, but I want to run back over it very quickly. Okay, so therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the Sanhedrin together. Okay, we've got to remember the Sanhedrin, and if I remember right, and the number's going to be close, but it may not be exact. The Sanhedrin consisted of about 74. I think it was around 74. It was somewhere in that range. Um, people. And it tended to consist of the chief priests... Now, what we're talking about is past chief priests that were still alive. Now, again, um, our past high priests that were still alive, um, like Annas, who is Caiaphas's father-in-law, um, he would have been one of those chief priests. These are these are people who had been high priests, were no longer high priests, but were still alive. So that would have included those high those former high priests. It would have also included Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, and we're going to talk about what that means when he, John says it that way. And the Pharisees gathered the Sanhedrin together. So the Sanhedrin consisted of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Okay, now I've talked before and I want to make it clear. So within the Pharisees, there was a subset called the scribes. The scribes tended to be the legal experts within the group of the Pharisees. And, and let's divide the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees tended to be from the royalty and tended to be more from the priestly lines. The Pharisees were more from the common people, though they tended to be the experts on the law. Um, Pharisees um, believed in the resurrection. Sadducees did not. There's something else Pharisees believed in. Sadducees did not. I can't remember what it is off the top of my head, but it's not germane to this conversation. But again, so it, w it was the Sadducees, which would include the chief priests and the high priest and the Pharisees, which would include the scribes. They would cons they would make up the Sanhedrin. Also part of that Sanhedrin would also be some of the Levitical officers like we talked about. Um, and I forget, I think this was maybe back in John 7 and 8. We talked about the officers that were sent out to apprehend Jesus and bring him in and they came back and had not done it. It would be some of those, the chief officers of those Levitical officers would also be part of the Sanhedrin. 
So they gather them together. They're like, we've got a problem here. And so they go, what are we doing? For this man is doing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So you can read that and go, well, wait a minute. Why is that a big deal? Okay, we need to remember the Passover that is coming. Because you got to realize this is this is coming close to the Passover and people are going to start heading in to Jerusalem. They, they will come in <clears throat> early to purify, purify ugh, sorry, having trouble talking, to purify themselves. And we'll see that in verses 55, 56, and 57. Starts talking about that. To start purifying themselves and preparing themselves for the Passover. Because they, they had to be pure. Their, their sacrifice had to be pure. Everything had to be right to take part of the, in the Passover. But also what we have to realize is the pass, Passover was a very nationalistic celebration, a very nationalistic feast. It was the, it, remember, it was in it was in remembrance and it was to celebrate the fact of them leaving Egypt and being free and heading out into the desert as their as their own people putting off the shackles of the slavery to the to Egypt so it was very nationalistic and remember they are an oppressed people they are a conquered people at this point they've been allowed to kind of exist in a subset. And, that, and that's what I think I've talked to you about it before, but if not, let me, let me clarify this very, very quickly. The Jews in Israel were allowed to exist in a very different state than everybody else. The Romans had, had conquered. They were allowed to almost exist as a state within a state. Now, don't get me wrong. So, so, so like the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leadership and all that, that, that government, all of that stayed in place and handled everything. The one of the, there were very few things and very few, um, justice, very few things of justice and stuff they could not do. They could not execute somebody. They could not enforce capital punishment. And there were a few others they could not do that was left to the Romans. Um, but at the same time, they also had to pay taxes to the Romans and stuff like that. But again, they were kind of allowed to function as a state within a state, as a state within the state of Rome, um, relatively unmessed with by the Romans in a general sense. So here is this Jesus who, you know, Messiah, son of God, that means he's king of the Jews. With all these th things he's doing, they are expecting, we have to remember this, the, the, one of the problems here within first century Palestine is they were looking truly looking for a nationalist leader, uh, nationalist leader to rise up and throw off the Roman yoke. So here's this man who has been able to feed the 5,000, remember 15 to 20,000 really, feeds the 4,000 from a couple loaves of bread and a couple of fish kind of thing. Remember, what was it? Five, what did I say? Five Twinkies and, and two sardines um, for the 5,000. And it was something similar for the, for the 4,000 is able to feed like that, is able to heal, has basically, and we got to remember that, has basically wiped out disease, has basically wiped out disease in that area. The overall health in that area has climbed from this one man. And that news is out there. And here he has raised a man, not only John 9, healed a man born blind. Man never had sight, now has sight, and resurrected a man who was dead. 
deader than a doornail. I'm not trying to be crass. I'm trying to be very, very clear. It's that blunt. Raised a man who was dead. Somebody very well known that everybody's going to know this story. So it could be a very, very, very big risk that if the Jewish people, the average Jewish people, start lifting this man up as king in, in a in a temporal sense, in a secular sense, lifting him up as king, it could bring the Roman hammer down. And if the Roman hammer comes down, it's going to squash everything. All you got to do is, do is look at what happened when they did finally revolt in 70 AD and what the Romans did to Israel. They stomped it. They burned it to the ground and they did everything they could to decimate the Jews left. Okay. So that's what they were afraid of. So you kind of understand the fear, but the problem is they're sitting there. So they're asking the question, what are we doing for this man is doing many signs. Now think about that. They've been talking about, (laughs) they've been sitting there going, well, he's doing these signs. Of course, they blaspheme the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin that, oh, well, he's only doing these signs by the power of Satan. Well, no, it's the Holy Spirit doing it. It's the, 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 the spirit of God doing that in Jesus because he is God incarnate. Okay. But, and, and in some cases they've even argued that he's not even doing the signs yet here. They are stating out out loud for this man is doing many signs. They're acknowledging and acknowledging the fact that he is doing all the things that qualify him, make very, very clear that he is the son of God, the Messiah. But then they say, if we let him go on, all will believe in him. They're making clear he is doing everything that is necessary for people to truly savingly believe in him. That there's absolutely no reason not to believe in him. But their fear is that they're going to lose their place and their nation. Um, but of course, if this is meant to be, and, and please understand, Jesus has never made, made said one thing about trying to raise up an earthly kingdom and an earthly army to try to trump the Romans. These people are misunderstanding, uh, and, and in a lot of cases on purpose, because all they can think of is a temporal. Please understand, these people claim to be religious leaders. But as far as we can tell, except for a few, um, you know, Nicodemus, um, Joseph of Arimathea, I would assume there are probably a few more. Um, the rest of them, they're only religious leaders in name only for power They're, they are politicians at best you know and, and and thieves and murderers at worst and most of them are that so but this is what they're asking and and you know so there's a lot of hubbub you know there's a lot of hubbub because believe me so john states this very succinctly but i'll guarantee you everybody in the sanhedrin was talking at once so verses 49 and 50 But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Okay, let me tell you a few things. So Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, Caiaphas would be a Sadducee because he's a high priest. He's from the priestly line. He is a high priest that year. And again, um, so I want to, it's really easy for people to go Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, and then assume that it was a a yearly change title. No, that's not true. Um, I don't remember how long, but from what I was looking at, Caiaphas actually held the high priest role longer than most. Um, it, It wasn't like, you know, 80, 90 years, 50 years or anything, but I, it was somewhere near 30 years, I think, or something like that. 
Um, I could go back and look, but it, it's really not germane. But so this isn't really saying this is not John the Apostle saying when the two times we hear him say that was high priest that year. What he's trying to say is as is as major as this year was, and we're coming into the Passover. This is coming into spring, late spring of that year. In that year, Caiaphas, that year of what these great things that are happening, these amazing world shattering things that are going to happen. Caiaphas was the high priest that year. That's what he's trying to say there. He's not trying to say that he was high priest for only that year. Okay. But so Caiaphas was a Sadducee. So let me tell you something. Now, let me preface this. Okay. This comes from Josephus. Okay. Who was, who was a first century historian, Jewish historian. And Josephus talks about, and I've read it, I've read it in a couple of different commentaries pointing out Josephus. Um, and I have Josephus. I just haven't had a chance to read it because it's huge. His works are huge. Um, but Josephus states that the Sadducees were incredibly rude, even among each other. Okay. They, 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 they were not pleasant. Now, let me, let me explain. Josephus is a Pharisee. Okay. He's talking about the Sadducees. Those parties didn't really tend to get along very well. So we've got to take what Josephus says within the context of that. But you look at how Caiaphas responds here. You know nothing at all. So basically he's jumping in the middle of it and going, you people are all fools. And these are the people, even his own Sadducees, even people in his own party. It, this would even include, you know, and, and, you know, you don't see him say a preface. This would even include him, him, him referring to his own father-in-law, Annas, who had been high priest before him. Okay. So you people know nothing at all. So he goes on, nor do you take into account that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. What he's basically saying is, why are you sitting there arguing about what we're going to do? It's, it's clear. There's only one thing for us to do. We need to kill this man. And it's better for this one man to die for the people and that the whole nation not perish in that statement. He's acknowledging the fact that we, and you're going to even see it where when they try to take it to, to Pilate and Pilate's going to be like, there's absolutely no reason to, to, to kill this man, to execute this man. You see this in Caiaphas's statement. It's very clear. This is a man that is guilty of nothing worthy of death. Caiaphas is already making the statement, we need to kill him to preserve our nation. Now, obviously it doesn't hold because in 70 AD, Israel gets squashed. But, kill this man to save the nation. Even if he's not guilty, even if, even if he's done nothing to deserve this, we're going to kill him to save the nation. Now, I, I'm sorry, the, the ends does not justify the means. Not in somebody who is truly a high priest, not as somebody that is truly moral, not in somebody that is truly holy. But that's where Caiaphas goes, and he's rude to them about it, or or so Josephus would claim, and it sounds pretty rude. You know, basically, you're all idiots. Obviously, we have to kill this man, no matter what he's done, no matter what he's shown us, no matter what miracles have been done, no matter how much he seems to be coming across as the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, we need to kill him. That's the only way we're going to preserve our place. And he talks about, and that the whole nation not perish. But the fact is, honestly, we ought to know well enough that they're most worried about keeping their own position and not losing their position. They're hypocrites. They're all about themselves. They're not, they're not about the religious, the, the, the faith-based well-being of the people. 
They're not. So, verse 51, 52, let's look at this. Now, he did not say this from himself, but being high priest that year, so again, high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. We know he was. I mean, he is. He's going to die for the nation, but not just for the nation. We see that in verse 52, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. What we see there, John is making very clear, we, and we've got to realize, John is not writing this in the moment. John is writing this decades after, and in all probability, he's writing it after the fall of Jerusalem, okay? So this is this is John looking back at what happened, but what he sees very clearly is Caiaphas actually prophesied here. God used the evil of Caiaphas and the evil of the Sanhedrin and and they're 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 putting them not caring about the means to reach an end but taking what Caiaphas has said to prophesy the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ that he's going to die for the nation he's going to die for their spiritual life. And, and, the, and like I pointed out, the resurrection of Lazarus, while it's a physical resurrection, it also, it, it also um, gives an image of the spiritual resurrection that Christ's death and resurrection gives us. His death pays the price for our sin, which gives us eternal life. I mean, like we've said, that's the whole purpose of this book. To show us clearly that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that in believing that we would have life in his name, we would have eternal life. That's what we're seeing here. And that's what, whether Caiaphas knew it or not, he's prophesying. And John, looking back, goes, hey, he basically prophesied this, that Jesus was going to die for the nation, dying for Israel, dying to, dying to provide a sacrifice, the final, and remember, it's going to be the final sacrifice of the Mosaic system. He is the only sacrifice that truly put paid. What I mean by that is ended the need for any further sacrifice to pay for the sins of the, of the, of the Jewish nation. But it also, verse 52, and not for the nation, for the nation only, Israel, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's we Gentiles. That he brings us under, brings us, we talked about it before, back in there talking about um, the good shepherd and the flock. Brings us from out other and brings us together all into one flock. So not only did he die for them, but he died for us. That's what John is seeing there as he looks looks back through time, looks back through that time and back on that. So verse 53, so from that day on, they planned together to kill him. So it has now gone into full-blown plan. It's not them trying to grab him and stone him on, an, on a moment's notice or them talking about it and telling people, hey, let us know where, if you've seen him. It's we now are putting a plan in place. It is time to kill him. Caiaphas has pointed it out that he needs to die so that the nation will not perish. Of course, that, that won't save it temporally, but they don't know that, um, though they should have figured that. So verse 54, therefore Jesus no longer continued to walk openly among the Jews, but went away from there to the region near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So obviously somehow or other, Jesus got the information. That, that's what John seems to be saying here. John the Apostle seems to be saying here that he under he got that information one way or another. Maybe, I mean, and we don't know this, it doesn't say, but maybe Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea, who were part of the Sanhedrin, had passed along. But in whatever case, 
he left the area, didn't walk openly among the Jews, among, you know, there in the temple and any of that, but he went away from there to the region near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. Um, that would probably be um, when you're coming through and reading um, Ephron, E-P-H-R-O-N, I think, Ephron. Um, and there he stayed with the disciples. Um, that's just outside of Bethel. It's, it's probably 12 to 15 miles away from Jerusalem. Um, I think it's heading towards the south. I think that's correct. So he's moved off that way. They're not as likely to come after him there. So he's a little safer there because it's not yet time. It's not yet God's time. Remember, Passover hasn't started. It's coming, but it's not Passover time yet. But we see the murderers. We see how clearly they manifest their murderous intent. It doesn't matter whether this guy's done anything deserving of death. It's the fact that we're going to kill him in hopes of saving the nation. But the fact is, they're not really trying to save the nation. I, I mean, they can say that all they want to. But all you have to have done is read through the previous 10 plus chapters of John that we've gone through and studied through it and realize they're covering their own behinds. They're saving their own tails. They're trying to save their own position. So they're willing to do whatever it takes to save their own position. All right, and that's where we're going to end for tonight. Tomorrow, God willing, we're going to deal with the multitudes, verses 55 through 57. All right, well, I hope you have a wonderful night. And I hope to see you in the morning. Let's go ahead and close out with prayer. We're going to close out with the fifth day evening prayer. It's called protection. Let's pray. O Lord God, thou art our preserver, governor, savior, and coming judge. Quiet in our souls to call upon thy name. Detach us from the influence of the flesh and the senses. Impress us with the power of faith. Promote in us spirituality of mind that will render our services acceptable to thee and delightful and profitable to ourselves. Bring us into that state which attracts thine eye and prepare us to receive the proofs of thy love. Show us our danger that we may fly to thee for refuge. Make us sensible of our sin's disease that we may value the good physician. Placard us the cross that it may slay the enmity of our hearts. Help us to be watchful over our ways, jealous over our tempers, diligent over our hearts. When we droop, revive us. When we loiter, quicken us. When we go astray, restore us. Possess us with more of that faith which is the principle of all vital godliness. May we be rich in faith, be strong in faith, live by faith, walk by faith, experience the joy of faith, do the work of faith, hope through faith, perceiving nothing in ourselves. May we find in the Savior wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Amen. All right, again, I hope you have yourself a great evening, and I hope to see you tomorrow morning. I hope to see you for tomorrow's episodes. We can go ahead and wrap up, God willing, John 11, and we'll be moving on to John 12 and moving into a new book, uh, moving into the second part of MacArthur's uh, commentary on the Gospel of John. All right, have a good night. God bless.